0: Okay, well, um, for the sake of those watching on the video, welcome to um, the continuation of our articles class. We are on article number 23 today, and you can find article 23 on page 607 in the 1928 Book of Common Prayer. So this one reads like so, article 23. It is not lawful for any man to take upon him the office of public preaching or ministering the sacraments in the congregation before he be lawfully called and sent to execute the same. And those and those we ought to judge lawfully called and sent, which be chosen and called to this work by men who have public authority given unto them in the congregation to call and send ministers into the Lord's vineyard. So, um This is basically saying that um, it's not within good order just to kind of decide, I'm gonna go be a pastor (laughs) and not be called by the congregation, not be sent by anyone and just hang out your shingle and now there you go, you're a pastor. Uh, Something to remember when we're dealing with um, the articles of religion is that they are written both um, in Latin and in English originally. And so sometimes the Latin will shed a little bit of light on what's going on when it comes to the English. And that's the case when we talk about this word here at the end, um, congregation. So it says that those who have the lawful authority um, to send, called and sent, are chosen and called to this work by men who have public authority given to them in the congregation. So, um, especially for our kind of American ears, where we're very much in, when it, when it comes to the Protestant world, uh, a Baptist land, which is congregationalist in their polity, um, we can see this and think, oh, this is, you know, that, that, that sounds kind of weird. Why are the Anglican articles sounding congregationalist here? Well, the, the Latin um, is, uh, t- tells us that it is the word for church. They're translating the word for church not congregation, so to kind of church on a big scale, even though it gets put into England as congregation and English as congregation. Um, and so when you read this, don't think of congregation in terms of an individual parish or an individual church building in that community that meets there. Think more along the lines of when in the Old Testament it talks about uh, the whole congregation of Israel. So that, that's that's more what we're talking about, the whole congregation of God's people, the church. Now, if this is talking about who is lawfully called, lawfully sent, and therefore can lawfully—and we're talking ecclesiastical law, here, church um, law—not so much civil law, but civil law is implied because you know this this comes from a state church, um, at least in its original form. Um, when, When we're talking about all this, it might seem a little weird that in an Anglican context we don't mention bishops. The reason for that is that um, this article seems to be something that was drawn up jointly between the Church of England and the German Lutherans in the very early days of the, Congreg- of, of, the, of the Reformation. This is something that we adapt from some of the earlier Lutheran confessions and kind of as we were working towards some sort of unity in the beginning, a very organic unity. Um, and the German Lutherans in particular didn't have bishops. So does that mean that we're saying your polity doesn't really matter? Well, for us, it's important to remember that we look at the articles in conjunction with the ordinal and the prayer book, and the ordinal, the introduction of the ordinal is pretty clear that, at least as far as our church is concerned, um, we see that bishops the three orders of bishop, priest, and deacon, uh, bishop, presbyter, and deacon, were from the earliest times in the church. So what happens for our partners in writing this, um, the Lutherans? Well, what happens is none of their bishops, um, all of all of the German bishops insisted on uh, following after uh, Rome's heirs. <laughs> and none of the bishops came over and so they were left without any bishops and you know kind of following after what peter and john say in acts chapter five the uh, lutheran ministers and lutheran congregation said okay we obey god rather than man and that means we're gonna have to do things without bishops because none of our bishops came over. However, there were other groups of Lutherans who did retain bishops and they have ever since, and those are particularly the ones in Scandinavia. So really what we are saying here is that we need to do commissioning of ministers in good order. And good order, as far as we understand it, consists of those three orders of bishop priest and deacon. Um, I should also note that pretty much all of the magisterial reformers agreed that the three orders of ministry were a good thing, the Calvinists, all the Reformed, um, the Lutherans, us, but what happened was for many of them, just like, again, just like the Lutherans in Germany, um, their bishops didn't come over uh, to the, to the you know, they did not leave the errors of the Roman church, they remained in Rome, and therefore they didn't have any bishops. And there was a time when it looked like they they, they were trying to see if perhaps England could provide that Episcopal oversight. Unfortunately, things didn't quite work out that way. Um, And then we have many, many, many years of history later on when they're kind of going their own way. And we see in particular um, in the Reformed world kind of a Presbyterianism becomes uh, something that a lot of the Reformed world um, approaches. Well, what's what's going on here? You know, if, you know, in our ordinal, we, we say that from the earliest times, from apostolical times, there were the three orders how come other Christians say, well, no, there's only elder-led churches, that's Presbyterianism, or it needs to be Congregationalist, which is Congregationalism the way the Baptists do it. Um, And the truth is that the scriptures are a bit less clear, but church history is not less clear. And here's the way this goes. Um, in, In the scriptures, we do see in its Greek form all three of these terms used. Um, deacon, which really is kind of a transliteration from the Greek. The, the Greek word for deacon is, sounds a lot like the English word deacon. Um, priest, which comes from the Greek word that sounds like presbyter, um, which means elder, old man, basically. Um, and then um, bishop, which is kind of a corruption of the Greek word episcopus. Um, you've, you've, you know You've heard the term episcopalian, it means led by bishops, and, um, which, which means in Greek, um, overseer. Well, pretty much everybody agrees that in the New Testament, the terms uh, bishop and presbyter, overseer and elder, bishop and priest really are used interchangeably. Um, the New Testament does not make a distinction. However, the New Testament does have something else and that's the apostles. So in the New Testament, we still have three orders. We have the apostles, we have the bishop priests, you know, bishops, priests, kind of one order, and then the deacons. And the way it seems like things evolve um, is that the uh, as the apostles die out, the apostolic office, um, kind of gets shifted to the bishops. And there is really a big difference. So, so, and these are the people that the apostles themselves did train and leave in charge. Um, and uh, the biggest difference between the apostles themselves and the apostolic office of bishop is, is that the apostles being the ones that did um, get taught directly by Jesus and were inspired by the Holy Spirit, um, to write the New Testament, um, they had a level of inspiration, at least when they were writing the New Testament, that does not exist in modern day in, in, in the bishops today. So that, to that extent, you know, the, the capital A apostles are different from the bishops, but that the job of running the church really gets shifted up to the bishops. And probably the bishops in the in the in the very earliest times of the church were similar to um, kind of an archdeacon today. You know, they were they were they kind of oversaw other 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 elders, other other presbyters in one capacity or another. And um, we do. And, and the, the main difference in, in church history Um, in terms of the the real ecclesiastical role, the real role of the office, is that bishops ordain and priests do not. Bishops ordain and priests do not. And we see some, some hints of this already in the New Testament time when Paul appoints men like Titus and Timothy to ordain within their own sphere. Um, Titus and Timothy were functioning very much like a modern-day bishop would. And this is the pattern that we know absolutely for certain by the time we we, we are leaving the second century. So within about 100 years or so of the last apostle's death, this pattern is firmly set in the church. Um, and, And that next generation says... Yes, you know, our bishops are the ones who were left in charge by by the apostles. Um, now, of course, that role—different things kind of happen with that role in different situations. You know, in um, in the in the in. Older England bishops became kind of monarchical, they became part of the nobility. Um, you know, as Christendom kind of gets gets established, and you know, in the in the in the days of feudalism, bishops function kind of feudally, which is not a good thing. Um, today, unfortunately, a lot of bishops function like CEOs. Well, okay, that makes sense. Our culture is one <laughs> that's that's very kind of uh business oriented, and so so there you go. But but really the bishop is supposed to be. The chief pastor, the bishop, ought to be doing the same thing that priests do, with the exception that they get to ordain. Um, now, in the West, we also reserve, um, we also reserve confirmation to the bishops, but um, that's not universal. Um, sometimes priests are given the delegated authority to confirm. And in the East, priests have, uh, for, for hundreds and hundreds of years, priests have been, have done the confirming. So even though, especially as Anglicans, we absolutely reserve confirmation to bishops, um, that's not universal in the church. That's basically us holding an older discipline. But the basic point is that, that a minister needs to be lawfully called lawfully sent nobody ordains himself any more than someone would baptize himself it doesn't work that way and and when we look at kind of some of the modern history of, of, of the megachurches we see that that kind of self-ordination happens way too often in the evangelical world and it's usually not a good thing um you know, we've mentioned in this before, uh, the, the story of the famous story of Mark Driscoll and, and, and Mars Hill. I mean, yeah, Pastor Driscoll bragged that he had basically never been in a church before he was a pastor. OK, well, that's that's a problem. You know, that shows an ecclesiological problem. That shows a training problem. Someone that was not lawfully called and lawfully said. And um, that sense of, well, God told me to do it. Well, how do you know? And how do you know that God told you to do it unless that's confirmed by the church? So, um, that's, that's the way this goes. Uh, Ministering is reserved for those who are lawfully called lawfully sent. And for us, that absolutely means, um, being called and sent by bishops. Um, and incidentally, that doesn't mean that we are de-churching those who don't have bishops. Um, you know, we've got a lot of water under the bridge historically, and, um, that's, that's, so, you know, but there is a reason why if someone comes into the Anglican Church from the Presbyterian world or the Baptist world or whatever, um, or e- even even a, a, a Lutheran who was not um, ordained by a bishop in apostolic succession, we, we do reordain. Um, whereas if someone has been ordained in apostolic succession by a bishop, um, we would receive them and transfer their orders rather than reordaining them. And, and, But again, that doesn't mean that we're saying what they were doing when they were a Presbyterian or a Baptist or whatever was, was illicit or, or wrong. But we are doing things according to good order, the way that the church has done it uh, since, since apostolic times, or at least right after apostolic times. Okay, questions, comments, article number 23. And since uh, we're uh, all, it, all on Zoom today, uh, feel free to um, unmute. <laughs> that was uh, interesting, interesting stuff, uh, especially in light of all the uh, the big mega churches and things we have going on now. Um, it's just, I just find it. Yeah, well, one of the one of the things that kind of big box American evangelicalism. Um, um, just really has a deficit in is their ecclesiology. They don't really think through what it means to do and be the church. Um, they just they just don't think about it. Um, you know, it's it's very practical and pragmatic the way they approach these things. And then that can lead to problems, you know, for, for our disagreements with our Baptist friends and our Presbyterian friends, they are thinking through this. I mean, <laughs> they, they come to different conclusions from us. And I think our conclusions are better historically, especially, but I mean, they are thinking through this, whereas unfortunately in that megachurch evangelical world, oftentimes they're just not really thinking through it. Yeah. Yeah, and this is the same world where people will say, "Well, you know, I can I can go be the church at Starbucks with my friends." Well, it's it's not quite the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> hey, and some of some of that goes back to how we're defining the church, right? Back in Article 19. I know it's been a few weeks, but the um, a, a congregation of faithful faithful men, where the Word of God is rightly preached and the sacraments are duly administered. You know, these folks who don't have that I don't really have a well thought out ecclesiology also tend to not have any idea what to do with the sacraments i mean they they just they just don't so you know this is where we can get somebody that's been going to church you know all their life and never been baptized you know that that's how that that kind of thing works and it's it's very unfortunate but you know we're we're here to help <laughs> yeah yeah All right, let's hit article number 24, and then we'll call it a night. Um, 25, we get into the sacraments. That's going to require a week of itself, and that really does start a new section. So let's do 24, and then we'll call it a night. This is of speaking in the congregation in such a tongue as the people understandeth. It is being plainly repugnant to the word of God and the custom of the primitive church, to have the public prayer in the church, or to minister the sacraments in a tongue not understood of the people. Okay, so we've got we've got two two bases for the argument for ministering and administering in the tongue understood by the people. Number one is that it's repugnant to the Word of God. Um, does the Word of God address this? And it, it really doesn't, because the idea that there would be some kind of separate holy language is just not something that's on the radar in the scriptural times (laughs) i mean you know in in the old testament these are hebrew speaking people and therefore everything's done in hebrew right i mean it's just it's just the way it is um in the new testament we do see there being different communities um among among the jews of that time that might not know um you know, there's communities that are worshiping in Hebrew, other Jewish communities worshiping in Greek, but why are the Greek ones doing it in Greek? Well, it's because that's what they speak. They don't really know Hebrew, so they're worshiping in Greek. Now, the rabbis had a problem with that. A lot of the Pharisees thought, well, that's that's a corruption of, of prayer and a corruption of the word of God, um, but the church, you know, the, the, the Lord and his apostles really didn't seem to take that line because... They gave the New Testament in the language that the people understood, which was Greek. Um, We don't have any evidence that any of the New Testament writings were in anything but Greek, with the possible exception of Matthew. There is some patristic witness that Matthew was written in Aramaic or Hebrew, and Aramaic is kind of a dialect of Hebrew. They're very closely related, Um, um, kind kind of like how... If you know Latin, you're not going to have a problem with Italian or Spanish. or if you know Spanish really well, you're not going to have a problem with Italian. It's kind of like that. only Aramaic and Hebrew are a bit closer than that because Aramaic really influences first century Hebrew. Um, so it's even closer than like Latin and, and Italian or Spanish or you know Spanish and Italian. Um, but yeah, we, 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 we always ministered the gospel in the language that people understood. But then we get to the issue of the primitive church. Well, how how do we know that it was always done in the language that the people understood? Well, in the East, we end up with different liturgies that are based on where those communities of Christians were. In um, the Middle East, where they were speaking Aramaic, we get the Syriac liturgy. And what's the Syriac? It's just Aramaic. It's just another word for Aramaic. It's the Syrian dialogue of Aramaic, but it's just Aramaic. In Greece, what are they doing? Greek. Um, by the time it spreads to other parts of the, uh, you know, in, when, when we get to Egypt, they're, they're in Coptic because that's the language that the Christians spoke down there um, and on and on. So how does Latin, how does this become controversial at the time of the Reformation? Well, in the Western part of Rome, Latin is what is most commonly spoken. Um, And as the Eastern and Western parts of the empire are going their separate ways around the time of the fall, increasingly folks in the East are not speaking Latin anymore. They're only speaking Greek folks in the West are not speaking Greek anymore. They're only speaking Latin. And so um, the very fact that we get Latin liturgies, which are younger than the Greek liturgies as far as we understand is a testament to that they were speaking in the language that the people understood. Now, as the Western church expands, what happens is they bring that Latin with them and it becomes the language of the educated people. Um, and in some ways that's, that's understandable Because um, that's where that's what everybody knows, um, who who is educated. So that's the language where you, if you know Latin, you can speak with anybody else in in the empire, in the in the Western part of the empire. But on the other hand, that tends to leave those that are less educated out in the cold. Um, Advance this by centuries, and what we have is a religion that has been lost by anybody but those who are learned, you, you lose the common people. A, a big part of the Reformation was, that there were really two things going on at the Reformation when it comes to languages and education. Number one, these um, early modern, late medieval, were kind of at that borderline between those two categories, kind of Renaissance era folks they're beginning to, this rising middle class is learning those original languages. They're not only reading their Latin Bibles anymore, they're actually going back to the Greek and the Hebrew. And so they're seeing where the translations were bad and that where, where some of the theology had been corrupted by bad translation. But the other thing is they're also wanting to get the scriptures so that everyone understands it just like it had been done in the primitive church and in the apostolic era. So it was very much insisted that each country needs to do their their liturgies, their worship, their scripture reading, their preaching, um, administer the sacraments in the language that the people understood. Um, For us, of course, that means English. Um, and I should say that there was, that, that because even at that time of the Reformation, Latin was still the language of the, of the educated, the language of the academy, the scholarship, that um, most everything we did in English, we also did in Latin for the sake of that international conversation. But also, um, a very early version of the Book of Common Prayer was translated, I think the first translation of the Book of Common Prayer wasn't a Latin for use at Cambridge and Oxford because they were still speaking Latin in the classrooms there and everybody knew Latin. So they still did, did um, the prayer book and the, 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 the Book of Common Prayer Liturgies in Latin. But for the rest of us, it's English. Um, that brings up a, a very important question in our context. Has the prayer book English has, has English evolved to the point where prayer book English is no longer a language that the people understand it? Um, now, obviously my answer is gonna be no, otherwise I'd be advocating for us to change liturgies, right? <laughs> we wouldn't be using the 1928 prayer book. Um, and, and, and basically what I would say is that um, while there is a learning curve, it's not such that it's that it, that it can't be understood.. Um, there there might be a learning curve, but it can still be understood. And the benefits of retaining the traditionally English are, um, keeping alive, the, the the liturgical heritage that's come before us, that really robust theology, the robust um, 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 prose of our forefathers, which which for all the strengths of the modern liturgies, they just don't have that. There, there, it's a lot more, it's a lot more flattened. Um, that doesn't mean it's necessarily bad, but there is a place for keeping that alive. Um, I don't think it necessarily has to be everywhere, and I do think that some of the difficulties with the traditional language are a little bit overblown because we still are a, a literate people. We have not, we have not devolved um, to that, that extent in our, in our language, and, and a lot of that's going to be how it's communicated. If the readers and the clergy are... Reading the scriptures and communicating them um, with with them understanding it, it's going to be a lot easier for the people to understand it. So that that does require us to be on our game a little bit. Is it a bit more work? Yes, um, but I don't think that this um, that Article Twenty Four necessarily means that. Um, that there is no, um, that, there's, that there's no effort that goes into worship. Because no matter what you go, you're going to be learning worship. And then the thing about it is, I have, I have never met um, an unchurched person who, when they experience liturgy like what we would do here at All Saints, they say, oh my gosh, that's just so old-fashioned and I can't understand a word of it. That never happens. What I do get are are Christians of of large largely, you know, frankly, kind of baby boomer generation Christians, um, who just to them that kind of speaks of the thing that they left behind forty years ago, fifty years ago <laughs> when they when they were when they were kids, <laughs> and so so it's 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 not really an issue of difficulty, but but it's it's kind of an assumption. Where, where that generation says, but an unbeliever doesn't understand it they're, it's going to be weird to them. All liturgy is going to be weird to them. Church is going to be weird to them, they're unchurched. that's what it means. So I, I've never I've never really seen it as a as a significant barrier to um, I, I've never I've never run into anybody for whom it is a enough of a barrier to where they just can't worship. I've never experienced that. I've experienced people that don't like it, but that's not the same thing. Uh, questions, comments on number 24, and then we'll go ahead and call it. Um, I'm good. Thank you. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Father Isaac. <laughs> thanks, Mickey. Um, we will, we will, uh, resume next week and, um, providing everybody is, uh, <laughs> folks have recovered because there's so much sickness going around. I'll see you all on Sunday. God bless. Thank you, Isaac. Thank you. Thank you.